Well, good morning again, and welcome to Mount Calvary. What a, what a great morning it's been. Jake, if you were wondering, was baptized in the first service. We didn't forget him or lose him. Uh, celebrating what God is doing. And so we are so thankful for those testimonies and for how God's working in lives of adults and kids. Um, and now that we get to give back with OCC, this is one of our favorite seasons uh, and so we say thank you to especially Daisy Allison and Tori and for all the work that they do to kind of put this together. The school is also going to be a part of this with us. And so uh, we are really excited about uh, what God's doing here. We're going to pray that he keeps changing lives. Um, so this morning we're going to be in 1 Samuel 22. If you have a Bible and can turn to chapter 22, we're working our way through the book. We've kind of, it's been a, a bit discouraging as we've seen da David, not Daniel, David struggle. I mean, it has been a rough go for David. And we get to chapter 22 and we see pretty much the same thing that we've been seeing. Things are drastically bad for David. I mean, he, in verse 1, if you just peek at your, your Bible, David is alone and he is in the cave. How quickly things have turned. If you just think back to some of my sermons, I mean, things have just changed so fast for him. I mean, it was not long ago that I was talking about David being the anointed king from Samuel. It wasn't long ago that David had defeated Goliath, that they were singing his praises. I mean, he was a hero. And now, 1 Samuel 22.1, David is alone, and he's in the cave. And none of this is his fault. None of this is his fault. He has sought to honor God. He has sought to honor his king. Yet now, he, he has quite literally lost just about everything. He's not around his wife. He's not in his home. No one is around him. Jonathan is not there. His dignity is gone. I mean, he, if you think back to how Pastor Ray ended the sermon last week with Gath. I mean, David is at the lowest of lows, and now he is stuck, and he is in this cave. What, what a place for him. I don't know if you've ever spent time in caves before. Uh, I have spent some time. We would spend a lot of our summers for weeks in West Virginia, and what, what you do in West Virginia, what, what we did in West Virginia was we found caves to go explore, and this is nothing like Indian Echoes Cavern, if you've been there. This is much more, uh, yeah, wild and crazy. They, you'd literally be driving on the road, and you're with some, some locals, and they see a hole, a hole on the road in the mountain, and they say, let's go explore this cave, and so they they pull you into this cave, and this is what we would do. And there was one cave one time that I remember some people in the community took us to, and we were in this big meadow, and there was a little brook, a little stream, and there was a little waterfall, and if it was the right time of the season, there was a hole in the ground that they would say, let's, let's go into this hole in the ground. It was miserable. And so what we would do is they would lead us through this cave, and there was this one section of the cave where they played a game. Not a fun game, but it was a game. And what they, they called this little section the blind crawl. And so what it was, it was like a four-foot-high hallway or opening 
And, and what they would do is they said one person to the other side, probably 20 yards, an adult down to the other side, and then the rest of us would be on this other at this entrance. And so one at a time, the challenge was, the game, the really fun game was to send the people one at a time to navigate getting across the, into the cave, through the cave, to the other side, to the other person. But here was the twist. You could have no lights on, nobody, and there was no talking, and it was one at a time. Sounds traumatic. It was traumatic. I'm still thinking about it. I mean, it was truly frightening. And, you know, you, you turn on all the lights, you can see the person through the cave. But when the lights went out and there was nobody talking and they push you through, it was completely disorienting. Like, you didn't know which direction you were going. And what would happen often, I was one of the last to go thinking, maybe I can get out of this. I remember sitting there quietly, just listening. You're listening to the person, like, crawl, army crawl through this miserable place that we're in. And, and what would happen is, is almost every time, after five or so minutes, the person, would, the, the person crawling would find the person, but it wasn't the person at the other end of the cave. It was the person that put them through to begin with. Because what, and they would tell them it was awful. They would tell them, you're actually not at the end. You're still at the beginning. Go try again. And they'd push them back. But it was so disorienting. It was, you, you think you knew which direction you were going, but you, you stopped to think for a second, and all of a sudden, you had no idea where you were. And you can't help but think that David, in this cave, Adullam, is also feeling completely disoriented. Not what he was counting on. From castle to cave, from persecuted, from all this challenging things that he's, he's facing. Persecuted. He was celebrated. And now he's persecuted. He had all these people around him. He was king in waiting. And now he is alone in this cave. And so the question for us is, what do we do? What, what do you do? What do I do when we feel like life has just turned upside down for us? I mean, we can't help but think that this is what David was feeling. And so the question for us is... How do we respond when you experience loss and you feel yourself completely lost, so discouraged because of your job or your children or a medical situation, a job, whatever the situation is that causes you to feel completely disoriented, completely disappointed, discouraged, how do we navigate those caves and that cave moments? And so I think it's helpful for us to look here at, at the king in waiting. And you'll notice, you know, the text doesn't say a lot about what David was feeling in the cave. I mean, th this is narrative. Pastor Ray said this last week. It doesn't give us a lot of the details. I mean, there's actually one verse on the cave. David was in the cave by himself. When his brothers heard, they came and met him, and then they left. And so the question is, well, how, how, Pastor Matt, can you craft this whole sermon about what you suspect David was feeling? For all we know, according to 1 Samuel, David was enjoying the cave. But how, how can we presume that David was, in fact, disoriented 
discouraged and struggling in the cave. Well, thankfully, I'm not making it up. We're not presuming. We're not guessing what he was feeling. But we have another book. And when we pair 1 Samuel with the book of Psalms, we don't get the narrative in the Psalms, but we get the heart. I mean, we get the diary of David. And the Psalms tell us, David wrote this psalm when he was on the run and he was in the cave. And so for us, as we study the book of 1 Samuel, I think it's helpful, I think it's worthwhile to just pause. I mean, we've got a whole chapter in front of us, but I really want to focus just on verse 1 and the psalms that he's written while he was in the cave. Because I think it's helpful. I think it, it hits us where we are. I mean, all of us have found ourselves struggling and confused and doubting and discouraged. And I think it's really helpful to ask the question, what are we going to do? Like, how, how do we handle it? And so for that, this morning, we want to see David. And so I'm going to read the first two verses in chapter 22. Then we'll jump to Psalm 142, a psalm that he wrote in the cave. Then we'll jump to Psalm 57, another psalm that he wrote in the cave. And then we'll pray. David departed from there and escaped to the cave of Adullam. And when his brothers and all his father's house heard it, they went down there to him. And everyone who was in distress, and everyone who was in debt, and everyone who was bitter in soul gathered to him. And he became commander over them. And there were with him about 400 men. Psalm 142, a mascal of David, when he was in the cave, a prayer. With my voice, I cry out to the Lord. With my voice, I plead for mercy to the Lord. I pour out my complaint before him. I tell my trouble before him. When my spirit faints within me, you know my way. In the path where I walk, they have hidden a trap for me. Look to the right and see, there's none who takes notice of me. No refuge remains to me. No one cares for my soul. I cry to you, O Lord. I say, you are my refuge, my portion in the land of the living. Attend to my cry, for I am brought very low. Deliver me from my persecutors, for they are too strong for me. Bring me out of prison, that I may give thanks to your name. The righteous will surround me, for you will deal bountifully with me. Psalm 57, to the choir master, according to Do Not Destroy, a miktam of David, when he fled from Saul, in the cave. Be merciful to me, O God. Be merciful to me. For in you my soul takes refuge. In the shadow of your wings I will take refuge till the storms of destruction pass by. I cry out to God most high, to God who fulfills his purpose for me. He will send from heaven and save me. He will put to shame him who tramples on me. God will send out his steadfast love and his faithfulness. My soul is in the midst of lions. I lie down amid fiery beasts. The children of man whose teeth are spears and arrows, whose tongues are sharp swords. Be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be over all the earth. They set a net for my steps. My soul was bowed down. They dug a pit in my way, but they have fallen into it themselves. My heart is steadfast, O God. My heart is steadfast. I will sing and make melody. Awake, my glory. Awake, O harp and lyre. I will awake the dawn. I will give thanks to you, O Lord, among the peoples. I'll sing praises to you among the nations. For your steadfast love is great to the heavens, your faithfulness to the clouds. 
Be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be over all the earth. Let's pray. And so, Father, as we read these prayers of David, God, I pray that they would inform and inspire and teach us. Because all of us, every single one of us, we struggle. We have caves of all kinds. Some of us are in caves this very moment. And so, God, I pray that as we see the king in waiting, David, and how he handles this, God, I pray that you teach us Encourage us and comfort us that we may leave today walking with you fully, no matter what. To the name of Christ we pray, amen. So I've said it's been a bad run for David. I mean, it's been a rough, it's been a rough 10 years for him. I mean, it, since Goliath, it's not gone well. And the future, it's not looking great either for the next several years. This is, this is discouraging. This is not a happy, a happy moment for David. But what we see here in the cave is that God is not destroying David. That this isn't, this isn't the end for David. But instead, what is God doing? He is forging into David what he needs to be to be the king that God has called him to be. But this is not the end for him. And so we see the cave. This is a, this is a formative moment for David. In fact, this is probably more formative than even Goliath. David, in the cave, alone, with nothing, is going to learn more about himself and who God is. And God is working. So what does David do in that verse 1 of 1 Samuel 22? What's he feeling? What's he thinking? And what does he do? Well, Psalm 142 tells us. And it doesn't start great. Look at the verbs in verse 1. All of them. He says, I cry out. I plead for mercy. I pour out my complaint. I tell my trouble. I mean, he is unloading. He's experiencing misery. He is frustrated and he is discouraged and he is overwhelmed. And so what is he doing in verse 1? He is telling God honestly all about what he's experiencing. I mean, this is a prayer. He is telling God, pouring out to God, complaining to God, unloading to God, dumping all of it on God. And so what do we do? What do we do when we feel overwhelmed and disappointed and confused and with doubts? What do we do? The first thing we do is exactly what David does here. We pray honestly. We put a voice behind our feelings. And we don't over-spiritualize our moment. I mean, that, that's what we're maybe taught to do, or we, what we think is the right thing to do, is that we just, we spiritualize it, and we put a smile on our face, and we praise Him, and we just work really hard to be positive. Be blessed. God, you're in control. You're sovereign. And we just, we, we, we sometimes fake it. But this is not what David is doing here. He is being brutally honest with God about how he feels about his situation. Look at verse Look at verse 3. In the path where I have walked, they've hidden a trap for me. Look to the right and see there's none who takes notice of me. No refuge remains to me. No one cares for my soul. And he's saying, God, hey, have you, have you looked around? I mean, he's talking to God here. He's commanding God on what to do. Hey, God, have you looked around lately? Like there are traps that people are coming after me with. 
Hey, God, he said, look to my right, God. Go ahead, look to my right, God. In the cave, who's there? Nobody's there. I mean, David is a commander of armies. Who should be to his right? That's his general. That's his armies. That's all the people that are fighting for him. David is the king. Who should be to his right? That's his queen. That's his support. That's, that's everyone that is with him in the royal palace. He's a husband. Who should be to his right? It's his wife. It's his family. And he's saying, God, look to my right. No one is there, God. I am all alone. And it's not just the physical support that, God, that, that David is telling God about. He says, look, in verse 4, I have no refuge. No one cares about my soul. It's not that I'm just physically alone, God. But I am, my, my soul has been abandoned. You have abandoned, I have been abandoned by everything, by everyone, and I am all alone. And what is David doing here? He is complaining. He is venting. He is being honest about God and his feelings and his experience. And so the question is, is this, is this okay for us to do? And I would say, uh-oh, well, this is awkward. Yes. There is a place in the life of the believer. There's a place to lament and to be honest with God about what you feel. Why wouldn't we be honest with God about how we feel? He's the one person who can do something. I mean, we tell everybody else, we tell our brothers and our sisters, or our husband or wife, why wouldn't we be honest with the one person that can do something about it? I mean, this is what David does. I mean, we have example after example. David, are you do you feel abandoned? Psalm 22, 1, tell him about it, David. My God, my God. Why have you forsaken me? David's feeling lonely. What does he do? Oh, he tells God. Psalm 25, turn to me and be gracious. I am alone and I am afflicted. You stress, David. What does David do? Psalm 31, 19, I am in distress. My eye is wasted from grief. In other words, I am physically exhausted from all the weeping that I've been doing. Hey, David, are you depressed? Are you depressed? Psalm 13. How long, O oh Lord? Will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? David, are you sad and you don't even know why you're sad? Psalm 42.5. Why are you cast down, O oh my soul? Why are you in turmoil within me? There is a place for us to be honest with God about how we feel. My son, uh, Jack, came home singing a song he learned in Spanish class uh, over and over and over and over again. I've got the joy, 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 however many times down in my heart in Spanish on repeat. Thank you to Senor Whitmer for that. Um, but I was telling my son, this is the problem with having a pastor as your dad. Son, we need to learn some more verses to that song because we don't just sing out loud about our joy. We need the Spanish word for misery. And we need the Spanish word for despondency and disappointment and doubt. You go tell your teacher. We need to broaden this song because it's the, the truth. We don't just sing about our joy and we don't just talk about our joy. We, we have to be okay with talking to God. I'm struggling. I'm disappointed. I'm broken. I don't know where to go, God. 
it, it's the example that we get from David. And I think there's a spot, a place to be honest with God. And I don't think it's dangerous. I heard this this week and I thought it fits. You can't have intimacy without honesty. Which is true. In relationships, it's true. If you have a friend and they're, you know their life's a wreck and they're not sharing with you, they're just spiritualizing it or, or whatever, not telling you for whatever reason, and I can understand that, but there is a barrier to closeness in relationships when the other person just won't open up. And it's true relationally, it's true with your spouse, and it's true with God. There, there's a place to be honest with God, to open up to God, to, be on, to, to share with Him what, what you're experiencing. But listen, and the little girl, you'll like this, we don't stay there. Right? David doesn't stay there. He's not sitting writing his 372nd psalm saying, I am a mess and I am in a cave and I've lost everything. Like We don't have 300 psalms of David being honest with him. So while there's a place for being honest with God about your cave and whatever you're experiencing, it's really important to see here in the psalms, if we're going to learn from David, we have to see he doesn't stay there. His honest prayer becomes a hopeful prayer pretty quickly. And so look back at 142. Verse 4 is the lament. It's the being honest. I have no refuge. No one on my right. How long does this honesty last? Well, not long. One verse, actually. Verse 5, he counters it. I cry to you, O Lord. I say, you are my refuge, my portion in the land of the living. So we tell God how we feel, but then we let God tell us how to believe and how to move and what to, to hold on to. And so David quickly says, no, not that I don't have a refuge. I mean, the, interesting, the, the cave adulam, adulam is a Hebrew word that means, literally means refuge. And so David at first says, my only refuge is this, this dark cave that I sit in. But then he corrects himself. Well, wait a minute. You are my refuge. We see it again in verse 7. The righteous will surround me, for you will deal bountifully with me. I mean, Psalm 142 as a whole, this is not a heartwarming, this is not a heartwarming chapter. There's no verse in Psalm 142 that's a baptism verse for someone. Like, I have no refuge, I'm miserable, and I'm alone, and I'm excited to get baptized today. That doesn't happen. Th this, is, this is a hard psalm. But look at how it ends. At the end, the very last verse, the very last phrase, the righteous will surround me. It's like a beam of light pouring into the darkness of the cave. There's two words in that little phrase, will there's a future. What's my hope? How can I pray hopefully even though I am overwhelmed? The cave is not my end. It's not my grave. It's a tunnel. God, you're taking me somewhere. You're doing something. The, the two wills at the end of, of Psalm, 50, Psalm 142 tell us. He's, he's praying honestly, but he's praying hopefully. There's a future, and it is not in this cave. And we see more of this in Psalm, Psalm 57. So if you go back to Psalm 57, we see lament. We see honesty. My soul is in the midst of lions. Verse 4, 
I lie down amid fiery beasts, the children of man, whose teeth are spears and arrows, whose tongues are sharp swords. I mean, we could almost pinpoint the situation. It's not good. It is, it is, it is really bad. But he doesn't stay there. Verse 1, be merciful to me, O God. Be merciful, for in you my soul takes refuge. In the shadow of your wings I'll take refuge till the storms of destruction pass by. God is using the cave to teach David about how he can hope. He's teaching David how to hope. And so here's what I mean. David does not put his hope in his military background. Like he doesn't refer to himself the one who's defeated Goliath. He doesn't refer to himself in this passage as the anointed king in waiting, blessed by God, empowered by God. That's not how he refers to himself in this passage. But God puts him in the cave to teach him about how he can hope. Who, who is David refer himself to be in this passage? Verse 1, he's in the shadow of his wings. David is a baby bird. David is humbly realizing, my hope is not in my achievements. It is not in my victory. It's not in my vocation. My hope is in you. I am but a baby bird in the shadow of your wings. And so God is teaching him, forging him in this cave. So that, that now David, after being honest, can pray hopefully, God, you are my only hope. I, I'm not my hope. And he says in verse 2, I cry out to God most high. I mean, that, that's a powerful prayer. I mean, we get God most high. He's the king. He is over and above everything in his providence and his sovereignty. Take every step. If David is crying out saying, because it's hard. He's struggling with this. I cry out. I, I bow before you in this because I'm not most high. Saul's not running the show. Saul's not in charge. You, God. My hope is that you are most high, and you are in complete control, and you will accomplish your purposes for me, whatever they may be in this cave. And so he's praying hopefully. And in verse 3, he says, God will send his steadfast love. He's praying, he's, his hope in the cave is for God's steadfast love to be sent. We talked about this word, steadfast love, a couple weeks ago. Uh, this was the word that was used to describe Jonathan's love for David, and it's probably the most important of all Hebrew words. It's the, the word hesed. It's this, this picture of this faithful, covenanted, promised love between two people. And so when God uses this word for Israel and for David, and David clings to it, what he's saying is, I, I, I cling to your covenanted, promised, faithful love, God. I I hold on to the prom your promise that my hope in the cave is not the cave. And it's not myself, but my hope in this moment, and I'm praying it, God, is that your promises would come to pass in my life. I've been reading the classic The Pilgrim's Progress by John Bunyan. I don't know if you've read it. It's a great story. Okay, It's an allegory of the Christian life, and, and it's about... A guy named Christian who is making this journey from his hometown, the city of destruction, 
and he's going to the celestial city. And so he's running from this city that he's lived in with his family. And he's trying to get out of this city of destruction because the evangelist has told him, it's time for you to go and to go to the celestial city. And so he's on this narrow road walking to this new city. And he meets along his way. It's a longer story. I'm going to condense it a lot. But he meets a guy named Hopeful. And so Hopeful's journeying for him. And as they, they are on this narrow road to the celestial city, it starts to get rocky. It gets to be a difficult to navigate and to climb. But they have been told and they have been warned, do not leave this path. Do not leave the path. Well, they get to one point in the journey and they see a beautiful meadow. And they see another path in the meadow. And it looks like a lot easier of a path than the narrow path that they're on. And it also looks to be going in the same direction that they're going. And so they think, well, let's, it's going the same direction. Let's get on this path and then we'll go this way. Well, quickly they realize they have been deceived. And they have made a big mistake. The path gets harder. They get lost. And they don't know where to go. And they get to the point where they're on this new path that was started as the meadow and they have no other options but to go to sleep. And so they go to sleep, and they wake up, and they discover that they have trespassed on the land. I'm spoiling a lot of this, so it's okay. But they've discovered that they've trespassed the land of giant despair. And this big giant's towering over. He says, you're on my land. And so he captures them, and he takes them to Doubting Castle, where he puts them in the dungeon. Things can turn for a worse in an instant. And this is what happens in this story. All of a sudden, for a week, the, te- the, the story tells us that they're lo- locked. There's no food. There's no water. There's no light. And they, hopeful and Christian, are in despair. At one point, this is what Christian says. He's feeling double sorrow. He says, so all that day, they spent time in nothing but sighs and bitter lamentations. They are left to condole their misery to mourn under their distress. And so what happens is the giant goes to his wife. It's a, it's a kind of a weird, weird story. He goes to his wife and he says to her, what should I do to these prisoners? And she says, bad advice from the wife, go beat them mercilessly. I mean, just, just barrage them with hit after hit. And so the giant listens to his wife. He goes and he beats them. And as, he, as he's finishing up beating them, he tells them, this is the end for you guys. This is the end. End it for yourselves. This is not going to end well for you. And so he leaves them in that dungeon, fully expecting that, he's, that these two are going to listen to his advice of just putting an end to it. But when he comes back the next day, he is not happy that they have not done what he's asked them to do. That they're still alive. And so he proceeds to just lay into them verbally berating them with with labels and says all these awful things to them. And he goes back to his wife that night, and she says to him, go back to them tomorrow and take them out of the dungeon, take them to the castle courtyard and show them all the skulls and all the bones and say, tomorrow, tell them, this is is where you're going to end. Like This is the ending for you. And so they had this idea at night, and then it pans back over to Christian and hopeful, and this is what the text says to us, that they're doing that same time. At midnight, they began to pray, and they continued in prayer to almost break of day. So they begin to pray. They begin to cry out to God in the midst of their double sorrow, in the midst of their dismay, 
in the midst of all that they're experiencing, physical pain and distress and misery and mourning, what do they do? They begin to pray. And as the sun starts to come up, it's the most anticlimactic ending to a story ever. I'll warn you. Well, I'll tell you everything right now. But it's not an exciting ending. It, it ends so fast. As soon as he's done praying, the sun comes up and he remembers. Do you all know this story? He remembers. I was given a key. It's like, oh, thanks for remembering that, like a week and a half later. He remembers, I was given a key. It's the promise key. And I was told that this would unlock every door and every lock. So Christian pulls out the key of his pockets. He goes to his locks and to, to the gate. And, but, I mean, in just a matter of a few sentences, the promise key got them out of giant despair and the doubting castle. And so don't we see this? That when we are in despair and we are in the caves, where do we go? We go to the promises of God. We cling to them. Yes, we're honest and we lay it out before him, but we don't stay there. We don't stay in the cellar of our lament, but we rise to the clouds of his promises and his faithfulness. And this is what David is doing. He's clinging to the promise, the faithful, loyal love of God. And then he prays confidently. He ends with this. His, his tone changes in Psalm 57. Psalm 57 is a lament psalm, but he starts to kind of come out of that cave. And in verse 7 through 10, you just see this whole new disposition with David. I will sing and make melody. Awake, my glory. Awake, O harp and lyre. I will awake the dawn. David's not waiting to get out of the cave. He has this confidence and this encouragement because of this new hope. He grabs his harp, and he starts to sing and make echoes in this cave. This place that looked like his death has now been his throne and his room of worship. And so he is, he is making melody, and he is singing, not because of his circumstances, but because of God's promised, faithful love. And so this is helpful for us. That whether our despair is small despair, or it is life-changing despair, that it's okay to be honest. And it's okay to be hopeful and to be confident because David shows us the way. And now the sermon could end. We're, we're only one verse into the, into the text, so we got a little bit ways to go. Verse, it's going to be quick. Verse 2. Verse 2. I, I got to verse 2. And, and I mean, it, this verse can bring you to tears. You know, you hear this taught so many ways growing up. And then after thinking through verse 1 and then going to verse 2, you, you see it in a whole new light. So see this with me. Everyone who was in distress and everyone who was in debt and everyone who was bitter in soul gathered to him. He became commander over him. I mean, the way this is traditionally taught is these are the mighty men, and we know that. But I've heard it so many times that this, this is a ragtag group of like, of convicts who've got issues and David like kind of cleans them up and like that's how it's traditionally taught but I don't see that here at least at this part of the story here are men who are burdened they are distressed that's the word pressure they, they have all this pressure probably because of the political situation with Saul but they are feeling pressed on squeezed because of life these are men who are in debt. They have a burden on them that they can't repay. These are men who are discontent. The word for discontent is the word bitter. 
These men are bitter and discouraged and burdened. And where do they go? They go to the king in the cave. And what does he do? He gathers them. He teaches them. I mean, these men are going to become the mighty men of David who are going to fight battles and do great things. But they become mighty in faith as, as well. And so what we have here in verse 2, this is a picture of Christ. I mean, don't you think of Christ when you hear that verse, Matthew, when Jesus says in chapter 11, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Don't, I mean, don't you hear that? The king in the cave is a shadow. It's a picture. It's a taste of the king on the cross. That David becomes the king who says, Come to me. All these burdens, all these struggles, all these challenges, they gather him. And David is their commander. He said, follow me and watch me take these burdens away from you. And in the story, the rest of the chapter, there's another commander. So it's almost like you pick your option here. Because Saul is the other commander. And Saul is just about as wicked of any other person in the whole Bible in, in this chapter. Killing Ahimelech and his family. And so while David is a picture, a taste of Jesus, Saul is a picture of the Antichrist. John 10.10, 10, the thief comes to steal and kill and destroy, and I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. And so the question for you is, first, before we get honest, and before we, we get hopeful and get confident, the first thing we do is we come to the cross of Christ, and we come with our burdens. We come with our debts, knowing that Jesus on the cross removed, canceled is what Colossians says, canceled the record of our debt. That we can come to him in our caves, with our caves on our shoulders, whatever they may be. And we can bow before him in faith and know God is a God who takes your burden away. And so for us, this, this is life changing. Life changing. And it's my hope. This is what we would turn from, that we would, that we would turn to him who takes our yoke and takes our burdens. And so now let's pray and we'll sing a song to close. Father, we thank you that like the mighty men in verse 2 came to David with their burdens, God, that we can come to you with ours. And it doesn't matter if, if it's distress or if it's debt spiritual debt or bitterness or anger, depression, whatever it is, God, that we can come to you and know that you are the king on the cross who sent your son to take it away, to forgive us and to give us life, that you take our death and our caves and our hopelessness and you give us life through faith in your son. And so, God, I pray for the person here this morning who feels lost in a cave completely distressed and overwhelmed, God, that they would come to the cross. They would come to you, God, who takes burdens, who makes it light, who gives new life and forgiveness through faith in Jesus. And so, God, I pray that this morning we would learn, we would learn how to walk the cave, that the caves are not our graves, but God, you can make them tunnels, that there's light and there's hope, and that if we cling to you in all your promises, that we can walk in confidence. So help us. It's hard. 
And we're in the midst of it to do this. It's hard. But God, we pray that you would help us through grace. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.